0: Welcome to Arts Express, this is Prairie Miller, and on the show, the gift that Garland Nixon seems to have gotten himself for the holiday, along with his reaction to the U.S. House of Representatives just declaring anti-Zionism as anti-Semitism. Then what in the world is a Christian Zionist, which Biden proudly declares himself to be? Here's Pacifica host, Garland Nixon.
1: Hello, Garland Nixon here. And believe it or not, I just see this an interesting fan. Look at this. A Central <laughs> Intelligence Agency fan. A CIA fan. Garland has a CIA fan. You might ask why I got my CIA fan. Let me tell you. Um... The Congressional Black Caucus, uh, the Congressional Black Caucus annual legislative conference, what I which I haven't been to in years. Every year they have a uh, an, an event in Washington, DC. And at the Washington like uh convention center, they'll set up and there's all of these tables, right? And at the tables there'll be all these corporations, all of these um government agencies, all that kind of stuff that have their have their giving away stuff. And that one of the tables was the CIA and they had a fan. And I so I got my official, I have my official CIA fan. Do you have yours? If not, I guess you'll have to go to the Congressional Black Caucus Annual Legislative Conference, which I don't go anymore because I have a feel. let me tell you, I raked those guys over to Coles in my, um, in my uh, WPFW show. And so I'm, I'm sure I'm not real welcome at the Congressional Black Caucus Annual Legislative Conference, but I may not be. But I got a CIA fan and they can't take that. I've got one uh, at my office on my desk also. At any rate, although I better check because you know what? There could be a listening device in here. Who knows? You know, let's think about it. The CIA doesn't give away anything for free. They give away their fan and there's a listening device in it. So what the hell The a listening device? I'm talking into a listening device. My phone's a listening device, everything you got. I don't know if you saw, what was it? WikiLeaks, um, Vault 7, right? Anything with a microphone is a list- listening device. So as I say, always say, if you're listening to everybody, then you're listening to nobody, so who cares, right? The Christian Zionists in America, think about this. The Christian Zionists in America, the Christian Zionists, what are they saying? Look, uh, right now there's a genocide going on in Gaza, and we got you back on that. Go ahead and commit that genocide in Gaza. wipe out all the Palestinians. But why? Why, I ask? Would they support that? Because in their twisted little minds, they believe that all the Jews have to come together in Israel so they can be wiped out. And guess who comes back then? The Prince of Peace, Jesus. Think about the twistedness of that. Hey, man, we got to support the uh, genocide of the Palestinians. Why? Because then the Jews can get genocide. And what happens? Then our boy comes back. Really? Who's he? The Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. That's, it's, hey, it's Christmas season. Let's celebrate the Prince of Peace. How do you want to do that? Well let's first let's wipe out all the Palestinians and we'll say to the Jews, "Hey man, we got you 100%. Go ahead and take care of those Palestinians." Okay, great idea. What now? Oh yeah. It's your turn cuz we're waiting for the prince of peace and the only way we can get the prince of peace, he's a prince and he's bringing us peace, but you got to be wiped out. With friends like that, supporters like that, I don't need enemies that literally It's a genocidal mentality against the Jewish people that drives the Christian Zionists. I mean, people don't want to say, you know me, I'm going to say what I think on air. I don't care. Look, every single show, as far as I'm concerned, is my last show. I treat every, I've had people say, Garland, you can't say that on air. They'll throw you. Every show is my last show. If I don't say it, I don't deserve to be in front of this microphone. So if what I say is my last show, so be it. At least I got it out there. Uh, This is the way I look at it. Do you realize that one of these days you, me and everybody, you know, will have been dead for 100 billion years. The time will come when we've all been dead for 100 billion, trillion, trillion, billion years. So what the hell difference does it make if we say what we got to say now and we do or don't get thrown off the air? At that point, we won't even really have existed, right? We were just a puff of energy, like a bubble that in, in a pot and the bubble rose up and it popped. That's all we really were. That's all we are. We're a bubble and we blow up and then we pop and we're gone. So what difference does it make? So I would say to anybody that doesn't like that, am I lying? Is it false? Is that what the Christian Zionists believe? We all know the answer is Yes. So they are no the Christian Zionists. Joe Biden says he's a Zionist. He, he ain't, he ain't, he's not Jewish. I would argue he ain't a Christian. I mean, that's a whole other story. Are you a Christian if you don't practice Christianity? Are you a Jew if you don't practice, practice Judaism? Are you a Catholic if you don't practice Catholicism? It's a good question what is it what you know there's a, always a discussion what is a jewish person is it a person that was born of a jewish mother or a jewish mother and a father? there's all these questions but logically speaking i don't know i'm not jewish i ain't catholic i'm really not a religious person at all but i'm just saying any religion it is if i was born a baptist I don't practice the religion I study in. So can I claim to be a Baptist, even though I was born technically a Baptist, even though I was baptized because that's what Baptists do. I don't practice it. So I don't consider myself a Baptist. So I don't really know how that works. I don't. Uh, it doesn't really matter, really. But that's the bottom line. Let me go on with this. I kind of think that what's going on in Gaza right now, I will call it like a bookend. You know, you got a line of books and you got a bookend on one end and a bookend on the other end. On one end was the beginning of the U.S. empire, right? And what did they do? Genocide. They got here. Hey, there's Native Americans. They got to go. At least 90 percent of them. So they wiped them out. Hey, is there anybody around here to work the land? We could pay these white people, but we don't really want to do that. We'd rather get free. Uh, this is capitalism at its finest. We'd rather get free labor. And there's some black folks over there. So, one of the things that empires imperialism colonialism does is it goes around the world and it steals people's stuff maybe bananas coffee beans silver gold you name it tea you name it right and in this instance what did they steal they stole labor they went over to Africa we need some free labor because we don't want to pay the white people okay They grabbed the people. They grabbed a bunch of black folks. They brought them over here. So America started off with these unthinkable crimes against humanity, enslaving people, wiping out Native Americans, doing terrible things. That was bookend one. That was the beginning. Now, after starting off in the most unthinkable way of committing a genocide against the Native Americans and enslaving the black folks, I would argue we're at the end. I don't know if you've been looking around the United States lately. Things ain't going so well. We're at the end. And we're at the end of the U.S. empire. And here's the other bookend, and it's a genocide. It's a genocide. Because, and I'll tell you why I think it's the end. Because the United States has lost any, in a world, I mean, I don't know why people would think this, but there were people that thought the United States as a, had some level of leadership or, or um, what's the word I'm looking for, decency. I wasn't one of them, but there was people that was blind enough that, oh, they missed all of the genocides that we did all along, but they were like, yeah, the United States, there's the leader of the free world or whatever. I don't know why people believe that, but some did. And now they're looking, and they're saying, you know, every generation of Americans comes out with this. We're not like the old Americans. Those are the old guys. saying they had slaves. They genocided Native Americans. Man, if I was back there, I would have stood up against that. While if I lived, I would have said, that's wrong. I would have been one of the abolitionists standing up against slavery. That's what I would have done if I was back there because those things are unthinkable. Who would do such a thing? Who would stand by idly and watch them enslave people and and wipe out the Native Americans with wanton, dis, reckless disregard for human life? Man, if I was back there, man, I'd have told them people a thing or two, even if it cost me my life. That's the kind of bull crap people talk, right? And here we are here we are and we're there and there is a literal genocide going on and you got some of the same people that claims that if they were back there then they would have did this and that making excuses for genocide today men women children being systematically annihilated they are locked in a bunch of walls, they can't run anywhere, they can't go anywhere. And what's dropping? 1,000-pound, the United States gave, I think, 5,000 of these 2,500-pound bunker buster bombs. Dropping gigantic bombs, flattening entire buildings full of people, 100 people at a time, 80 people, 50 people killed, men, women, and children blown to bits, crushed into rubble. And the United States is saying, hey, we got to, you know, that's just what we got to do. Now, from the perspective of the U.S. empire, I don't know if you paid attention during Iraq, we killed a million people. Libya, how about Syria, 600,000. So for the United States government, the fact is the American people didn't know or didn't see all that. So we just kind of pretended like it didn't happen. So ain't nothing for the U.S. government. I mean, Joe Biden's probably like, I don't understand why people are so upset. We've been doing this for years, for God's sake.
0: and coming up next on Arts Express.
2: After Prayers Lie Cold by C.S. Lewis. Arise, my small body. My small body, we have striven enough, and he is merciful. We are forgiven. Arise, small body, puppet-like and pale, and go white as the bedclothes into bed, and cold as snow. Undress with small, cold fingers, and put out the light, and be alone, hushed mortal, in the sacred night a meadow whipped flat with the rain, a cup emptied and clean, a garment washed and folded up, faded in color and thinned almost to raggedness by dirt and by the washing of that dirtiness. Be not too quickly warm again, lie cold, consent to wearinesses and pardons watery element, drink up bitter water, breathe the chilly death, Soon enough comes the riot of our blood and breath.
0: just heard was poetry from the pen of the late eminent British writer and theologian C.S. Lewis, best known as author of The Chronicles of Narnia, The Screw Tape Letters, and countless other works. And Lewis, portrayed by actor Matthew Goode, is the subject of a new dramatic feature, Freud's last session, about the two formidable figures' encounter Lewis's and Freud's battle of faith versus the psyche in determining human existential triumph with Freud played by Anthony Hopkins in a confrontation that, well, never actually happened. To sort all that out is our guest, Matthew Good. But first, some scenes from Freud's last session.
3: Professor Lewis. Dr. Freud. I've given you up for lost. Well, you have a wonderful home. My daughter, Anna, tried her best to replicate our home in Vienna. Forgive me, but why would you come here to see me if you disagree so passionately with my views? To make you realize that you're wrong. <laughs> well done. Good. You've
4: insisted all your lives that the very concept of God is ludicrous.
3: Yes. Why someone of your supreme intellect would certainly abandon truth and then embrace a ludicrous dream, an insidious lie? Well, I wholeheartedly disagree. Well, of course you disagree. You have to disagree. Otherwise, the entire structure of your childish faith would collapse into a rubble. Why does religion make room for science? Because science refuses to make room for religion. Oh, please, you're breaking my heart. Because they hide behind their ignorance. You hide behind your ignorance.
5: I think that you're afraid to feel emotions at all.
3: Is that your final diagnosis? Fascinating. I don't know. You don't know? Well, finally, 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 we're making progress.
2: You lie to yourself, thinking that you can
3: control death. truth is, you're terrified. We're all terrified. See, you bury your doubts, you bury your memories of the war. But at the core of your being, we're all cowards before death.
0: Hello, Matthew. Good, and welcome to our show.
4: Thank you very much for having me.
0: What is it about C.S. Lewis that inspired you to want to portray him in this film?
4: Reasons I wanted to get involved with the film. One, one is, I mean, I grew up reading the Chronicles of Narnia and loved it. Loved the escapism. Loved the story. Loved the structure. And um, but that, but that was only. But this is obviously a part of his life that I never knew about. And I also really liked which became an elephant in the room, if I'm honest. I, lo- I loved Shadowlands when I was younger as well, and I loved Tony's portrayal in that, although it did make me deeply scared, obviously, <laughs> not only of meeting the man, but also taking on the, a character he played, he'd incredibly well in that. But um, as I say, this does focus on a different part of his life. And, uh, and Tony Hopkins, Anthony Hopkins was a huge draw for me to come and want to mm. play this, and, you know, and to get two of the greatest minds of the 20th century in quite a simplistic structure, really. I mean, it is just sort of two men sitting in a room talking, but obviously but un, uh, revealing themselves to each other is, is, is fascinating. And then also the director, Mackie Brown, he was just hes a very, very charismatic, but very, very smart man. And it needed, it needed someone who's very, very, you know, very, very intelligent to, uh, to be able to, to not only um, take it from being a play and create a screenplay but also to be able to try and make it as cinematic as possible. Mm -hmm. Because as I say, the mise-en-scene is very much one room, or one double room. Yeah.
0: And what would you hope audiences to comprehend and come away with from this film? On the one hand, those with knowledge about these two men, and audiences with little or no knowledge about them.
4: I think really the message of the movie is is that you're going to have people who... With opinions that you don't agree with, and it is better to talk. Otherwise, if you don't talk, you end up. Le- it leads to fighting, and I think that goes as much for the political arena around the world right now as well. We need leaders who are incredibly intelligent and very, very compassionate, and have a comprehension of different religions and a concept of how different we are geographically around the world, and and we need to talk. Otherwise, it's going to lead to war. By, but our leaders need to be, I think, a hell of a lot better than they are at the moment. Mm.
0: And these two public figures—they represent much of the thinking of their time. What are your thoughts about what they might be thinking or debating if they lived right now? Well,
4: I mean, life is secular, isn't it? It isn't it? So well, it is cyclical. So there's an element of, um we're just—we're just, we're in the—we're in, the, in the middle of another war right now, you know on 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 a couple of different cases. So I think they that the, many of the problems that they would be debating would be exactly the same. it's uh, it's an unfortunate, it's an unfortunate thing, but you know, why is Hamlet still relevant? Why is Shakespeare's work still relevant because we're still because we as humans are we can't change that much. Mm.
0: And what did you figure out about c s. Lewis in order to portray him? whether concepts or contradictions,
4: well, one of the things that I, obviously, a huge sort of deep dive into, into his life and his history, and one of the, great, one of the things about playing a, a real character is that, is that if, if they're particularly famous, then a lot of their life is documented. But there's still sort of holes that you have to fill in. And one of the, one of the books that was, I mean, he hadn't, in 1939, which is when it's set, on the cusp of World War II, you know, he'd only written, I think, Uh, Pilgrim's Regress and a couple of other um, sort of Christian, uh, you know, apology books hadn't commented on his life that much. So in 1955, he wrote a book called Surprised by Joy, which was which allowed me to when it was all about his early life. And it allowed me to to think about how he he himself had been carved, because we often are made through our childhood and our experiences and all of that stuff. And obviously, we all knew about the trauma that he had as as a child when his mother died and his father sent him off to boarding school because as we say in the film, he had to be right that the public school was more traumatic than being in the trenches in World War one which you know especially considering he ended up with PTSD, it really does show how, how much of an effect that had on him in his life. but I was also able to find a, um, a little snippet of um, Douglas Gresham, who was one of the boys that he adopted after Joy, Joy uh, died, his, uh, his wife. Mm. Uh, and it was a little snippet of him being in a house in Ireland somewhere, and he was asked about CF Lewis, and he said he always remembered being, he would often run into, you know, smash down the door, run into his room, and, and uh, if CF Lewis was writing. He never, ever got angry. He would just put the pen down, turn around, and he was you know he was extremely patient and loving and brilliant. And I and like so that that just allowed me to try to, that I was thinking, well that's the sort of thing that I need to be able to get into uh into the film to show my job was to try to bring his humanity is basically what I'm saying. And and it seems to be he seems to have been a rather wonderful man.
0: And what are your thoughts about how this debate playing out back then? between those two men, to find 20th century perceptions about human existence, though minus that elephant in the room back then, Karl Marx.
4: Yeah, well, I mean, ultimately, this, this was, we know that this didn't really happen. This is a nice conceit <laughs> as an idea of the, that, that these two great men sat in a room, and it's more or less about the, the politics of the time as opposed, as opposed to it's an argument of in the causes of atheism or, or Christianity, and, you know, I really, I think one of the things that we, we sort of tried to get across, in, or the, the most interesting thing about Lewis was, was the fact that he had this trilemma, because obviously he was a Christian apologist, which comes from the Greek, which means to speak in the defense of, and his trilemma was, well, if you do your research and you read the Bible, there's only, it's only three options. One is that Jesus was mad, but one, one is that he was bad, or is that he was good? Mm-hmm. And you sort of, well, he didn't seem to be deceitful. He didn't seem to be a lunatic. And uh, it's just like it's a, it's a very great possibility he might be the son of God. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that's, but I can understand where Freud's coming from. And I, and I didn't, I haven't, stu- I haven't studied enough Jungian and stuff to, to be able to answer your question particularly.
0: Now you've portrayed real people in films before. So what are those challenges, Tony Armstrong Jones? And you, Alexander, in contrast to playing C.S. Lewis, there's no
4: difference really. I mean, you just do as much research as you possibly can, and obviously, there's going to be slight differences in rhythm and the way that you use your language. Um, and and um, I'm always going to have somebody different opposite me mm. because I had Vanessa Kirby most of the time when I was doing Tony Armstrong Jones. And you you create there's a great intimacy between actors, and I'm getting. Fifty percent of my performance is coming from the, sometimes more, um, is coming from the person opposite me. So there's always going to be that difference as well. But generally, time frame, and uh, so your costume also might be, it might change your performance. And if you're wearing a studded shirt, for example, that's going to, you know, it's going to make you sit up a bit, and all, all sorts of things can change your performance. But it, ostensibly. Hard, find out who the person is. And I've only got one face and one voice, so it's always gonna sound a little similar. <laughs> um but yeah. Hopefully, hopefully different humanity.
0: Yeah. And you once said, quote, making a film is very hard work and you live or die by the sword just a little bit every time you do it, but I wouldn't chuck it in. Please elaborate.
4: I wouldn't chuck it in. I wouldn't give up. No, I mean I love my job. I love it. I mean you know, I mean it, it, it relies on a lot of the time. I mean you remember, you know, I'm not a star or anything. So sometimes you get sometimes you need to work, sometimes you need to check. That's like any normal person. And sometimes you get to go to work with some of the best actors in the world, like I did with Tony here yeah, and a brilliant director like Matthew. And sometimes you just go to work and you don't really know what's gonna happen, which is what I mean by when you live and die by the sword every time, because you know, I like to think I'm fairly good at my job. But um, it's also, you know, it's a director's medium. And sometimes it just doesn't work or flow. Remember, it's, you have to execute under pressure, which is what we love doing. But then it goes into a system and it's, it's somebody else's vision of the project. And sometimes that doesn't work for the critics and it doesn't work. I mean, that's pretty much that's my, my experience of it is try to enjoy the process as much as you possibly can when you're actually making the film. And then that's, I think that's why a lot of us don't really watch... Because I don't particularly like seeing my face uh, or hearing my voice, but you know, you you let You have to let the work go, and it's and it, you know, it's like it's like working with an artist. You're a paint or a color. He's going to take it, use you,
0: and it might not work out how you wanted it to. And when Matthew Good looks in the mirror, what does he see? Right now, someone's very tired.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I've been doing this for. A while. I flew into Los Angeles <laughs> a few days ago. And then I'm now here in New York. So things are getting better each day, but I'm my sleep for some reason. Uh. A, bit, a bit up and down. But um, yeah, someone getting older and getting ever more tired. So I'm very much looking forward to
3: Christmas.
0: And being part of Freud's last session and getting so familiar with both C.S. Lewis and Freud, did you change your thinking about either of them? Or were you enlightened in any way about either of them?
4: No, I mean, along the process, I would just it just made me love CS Lewis even more. Really, that was that's the, only, that's the only thing that really changed for me.
0: And what are your thoughts about the change in title from the original, "The Question of God," to this film with its emphasis on Freud in the title, "Freud's Last Session"?
4: Well, I think that's really a, a question that should be given to our our humble director and screenplay <laughs> uh Matthew Brown. But I think uh, I think both titles are quite sexy. <laughs> um, but Freud, Freud's last session puts more of an emphasis on that room And on, and on the great man And, uh, yeah
0: And what would you like audiences to understand about C.S. Lewis and about Freud?
4: I sort of don't really want them to I want them to go in and have their own opinions on it I think that that's all you can ask for Is, you know, we don't, we don't, take, we don't take one side nor t'other And so it's, just an, it's very interesting for them to watch a debate on both you know, this conceit, as I said, but you know, this sort of heated debate, and, uh, and see what then you have to make of it, what they will.
0: Okay, thank you so much, Matthew. Good for joining us on the show.
4: Thank you very much for having me. Okay. Have a lovely day.
0: You too. Bye. Bye. And for its last session is out now in release, and next on the show.
5: Hi, this is Jack. Shalom. I'm going to be reading an excerpt from the poem Palestine A to Z from the book Things You May Find Hidden in My Ear by Mossab Abu Toha, published by City Lights Books in 2022. Abu Toha was born in 1992 in Gaza's Al Shati refugee camp. He started the Edward Said Library in his house and it eventually became an important cultural center in Gaza. After many months and months of delay, he was able to teach as a visiting fellow in the Scholars at Risk program at Harvard. He was 26, and it was the first time he had ever boarded a plane. Afterwards, he got into the MFA program at Syracuse University and moved there. But because it was the middle of the pandemic and classes were virtual, Mossab and his family felt very isolated and returned to Gaza. On November 19, 2023, Abu Toha was detained by the Israeli Defense Forces while he was headed to the Rafah border crossing in an attempt to evacuate from Gaza with his family. On the 21st of November, Democracy now reported that Abu Toha had been released after being taken to an Israeli prison in the Negev and beaten. He was taken to a hospital due to his injuries. On December 3rd, Abu Toha tweeted that he and his family had been finally able to make it to Egypt. And now an excerpt from the poem, Palestine A to Z. Palestine A to Z. A, an apple that fell from the table on a dark evening when man-made lightning flashed through the kitchen, the streets, and the sky, rattling the cupboards and breaking the dishes. Am is the linking verb that follows I in the present tense when I am no longer present, when I am shattered. B, a book that doesn't mention my language or my country and has maps of every place except for my birthplace as if I were an illegitimate child on Mother Earth. Borders are those invented lines drawn with ash on maps and even into the ground by bullets. C. Gaza is a city where tourists gather to take photos next to destroyed buildings or graveyards. A country that exists only in my mind. Its flag has no room to fly freely, but there is space on the coffins of my countrymen. D, dar, means home. My grandparents left their house behind in 1948 near Yafa Beach. A tree my father told me about stood in the front yard. Dreams of children and other parents, of listening to songs or watching plays at al mishal Cultural Center. Israel destroyed it in August 2018. I hate August, but plays are still performed in Gaza. Gaza is the stage. E. An email account that I used when the power was on, the email through which I smelled overseas air. I used it first to send photos to my aunt in Jordan, who we last saw in 2000. How easy it becomes to recognize what kind of aircraft it is-an F-16, helicopter, or a drone. What kind of a bullet it was, from a gunboat, an M-16, a tank, or an Apache. It's all about the sound. F. Friends from school, from the neighborhood, from childhood. The books in my living room in Gaza, the poems in my notebooks. still lonely. The three friends I lost to the 2014 onslaught. Ezat, Amar, and Ismael. Ezzat was born in Algeria, Amar in Jordan, Ismael on a farm. We buried them all under the cold ground. Fish in our sea that the fishermen cannot catch because the Israeli gunboats care about sea life in the Mediterranean. They once fished at the Gaza beach with a barrage of shells, and Huda Khalia lost her father, stepmother, and five siblings in June 2006. I walked in their funeral procession to the cemetery. Blood was still fresh on their clothes. They had poured out some perfume to cover the stench. Over time, my hate for perfume grew intense. G. How are you, Mossab? I'm good. I hate this word. It has no meaning to me. Your English is good, Mossab. Thanks. When I was asked to fill out a form for my U.S. J-1 visa application, my country, Palestine, was not on the list. But lucky for me, my gender was. H. If a helicopter stops in the sky over Gaza, we know it's going to shoot a rocket. It doesn't see if a target is close to children playing marbles or soccer in the street. My friend told me, hey... Is a slang word and shouldn't be used. English teachers would faint at what goes on today in written English, she said. I. Images on the wall of buildings, a child who is shot by an Israeli sniper or killed during an air raid en route to school. Her picture was placed on her desk at school. Her picture stares at the blackboard. While the air sits in her chair. I wake up ill when gloomy ideas, what might have happened to me, come in my dreams. What if I had stopped for a few seconds at the window when a bullet from nowhere ripped through the glass? J. Once I sent a picture of my desk in Gaza to a friend in the United States. I wanted to show that I was fine. On the desk were some books, my laptop, and a glass of strawberry juice. When I sent that photo, I was jobless. About 47% of people in Gaza have no work, but while writing these lines, I'm trying to start a literary magazine. I still don't know what to name it. K. My grandfather kept the key to his house in Jaffa in 1948. He thought they would return in a few days. His name was Hassan. The house was destroyed. Others built a new one in its place. Hassan died in Gaza in 1986. The key has rusted but still exists somewhere, longing for the old wooden door. In Gaza, you don't know what you're guilty of. It feels like living in a Kafka novel. L. I speak Arabic and English, but I don't know in what language my fate is written. I'm not sure if that would change anything. Light is the opposite of heavy or dark. In Gaza, when the electricity is cut off, we turn on the lights, even in broad daylight. That way we know when the power's back. M, Mahaba means hi or welcome. We say Mahabah to everyone we see. It's like a warm hug. We don't use it, however, when soldiers or their bullets or bombs visit us. Such guests not only leave, but also take everything we have. My dad used to prepare milk for us with some Kirshala before school. I was in third grade and my mother was at hospital taking care of my brother. My brother died in 2016. N. In 2014, about 2,139 people were killed. 579 of them were children. Around 11,100 were wounded. Around 13,000 buildings were destroyed. I lost three friends, but it's not about numbers, even years. They're not numbers. A nail is used to join two pieces of wood or to hang things on the wall. In 2009, the Israelis targeted an ambulance with a nail bomb near my house. Some were killed. I saw many nails on our neighbor's newly painted wall. Oh, Yafa is known around the world for oranges. My grandmother, Chandra tried to take some oranges with her in 1948, but the shelling was heavy. The oranges fell on the ground. The earth drank their juice. It was sweet, I'm sure. In Gaza, we had a clay oven that our neighbor, Munir, built for us. When my mother wanted to bake, I fed it wood stems or cardboard to heat it for the bread. The woody stems were made from dried plants, pepper, eggplant, and corn stalks. P, a poem is not just words placed on a line. It's a cloth. Mahmoud Dadvish wanted to build his house, his exile, from all the words in the world. I weave my poems with my veins. I want to build a poem like a solid home, but hopefully Not with my bones. On July 23, 2014, a friend called and said Ezat was killed. I asked, which Ezat? Ezat, your friend. My phone slipped from my hand and I began to run, not knowing where. What's your name? Mossab. Where are you from? Palestine. What's your mother tongue? Arabic, but she's sick. What's the color of your skin? There's not enough light to help me see. You've been listening to an excerpt from the poem Palestine A to Z from the book, Things You May Find Hidden in My Ear by Mosab Abu Toha, published by City Lights Books in 2022. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller.
0: And coming up next on Arts Express, Hi, this
5: is
6: the UK Desk for Arts Express, and my name is Brett Gregory. The French Marxist philosopher Louis Althusser outlines for us how our values, desires, attitudes, and tastes are shaped by wider capitalist consumer society and culture on a daily basis. He calls this network of influence the ideological state apparatus, and it includes the soft power of, for instance, the media, education, religion and the family. In turn, Althusser also identifies how this societal framework of influence is enforced by the repressive state apparatus. That is to say, the hard power of, for example, the military, the police, the judiciary and the prison system. On this evening's show, we're going to be discussing a 2022 independent documentary called Theaters of War, how the Pentagon and the CIA took Hollywood. An incendiary expose, which reveals how Althusser's ideas have been combined to produce propagandist entertainment products like Paramount Pictures' Top Gun Maverick, Amazon Prime's Jack Ryan series, and Activision's Call of
7: Duty. But first, let's listen to the trailer. So say you're a producer and you want to make a war film. You would walk into the entertainment liaison office in downtown Los Angeles. You say, I want to film uh, an Air Force base, or I want an aircraft carrier, or I want some Black hole helicopters, or whatever it is. And they would tell you straight away, give us your entire script.
1: And we've worked with Mr. Bay here since Armageddon, if I'm not mistaken, and, uh, and hope to do more of the same.
8: I've got a direct line to the Pentagon. <laughs>
5: Some people probably would say, well, yeah, I've heard of this, like the Top Gun, maybe Black Hawk Down, maybe some of the Marvel
7: series. But what they don't know is how systematic this has been and how
5: huge this operation has been. You can call it censorship, you can call it propaganda. It's it's all of these things. Now these freedom of information requests
7: that have been successful allow us to actually look at that list and it's stunning. What we've found is that thousands upon thousands upon thousands of products have been affected and are often rewritten at script level by the national security state in the United States. Do normal people know about that? No, of course they don't. Nice
6: one, Matt. So please tell us, as ordinary citizens and consumers, what are we up against? And what motivated you personally to co-produce Roger Stahl's
7: Theatres of War documentary? Hi, Brett. My name is Matt Olford. I teach at the University of Bath in the UK, and I specialise in the politicisation of media, especially film, and particularly as it relates to British and American foreign policies. The Department of Defence has got a budget of $800 billion, it's an obscene amount of money to waste. And, you know, there have been all these stories for decades about, you know, the Pentagon spending $640 on a toilet seat and $1,000 on a nacho cheese warmer and <laughs> things like that. It's a hugely wasteful organization. Not that it's just wasteful and splurging money around, but actually that it really quite actively, really desperately needs to spend a lot of money on PR. And that's not just to attract personnel. But I think that it needs to con the whole world and the American public, of course, most importantly, into thinking that the American national security state is a force for global stability. And it isn't. It just isn't. It hardly ever is. The United States is very commonly a destabilizing force in many conflicts. And what would
6: motivate a powerful governmental entity like the Department of Defense to carry out such a sustained PR assault on us? Haven't they got actual wars to fight and real spies to catch?
7: I think this need for PR was perhaps most clear, though, in the 1990s, after the Soviet Union collapsed. The whole national security state started pouring money into PR because at that point there was even less rationale for these heavily state-subsidized, taxpayer-subsidized systems of domination to exist because there was no enemy. It seems a little bit different now because we're in a multipolar world and have been since 2012, maybe 2017, say. But uh, in the 1990s, there was a real opportunity to have developed and forged uh, peaceful alternatives. I mean, there still is, but uh, it was extremely clear at that point. And uh, I always think it's such a great tragedy. And it's, uh, you know, looking at international relations over the past 30 years has, has just been like watching a slow motion car crash.
6: And what motivated you personally to pursue this research topic, to co-author your 2017 book,
7: National Security Cinema, with Tom Secker? About 20 years ago, I began a lengthy private correspondence with Noam Chomsky, the world's most celebrated anarchist and philosopher. So it was really that experience which drove my research But that said, there were definitely some politically distinct films around that time, uh, right at the start of my research process. Uh, So, for example, Behind Enemy Lines, which was set in Bosnia, uh, Munich, which was about Israel-Palestine, and Hotel Rwanda. And these were all received as moderate, uncontroversial mainstream movies. It was only really when I took a more forensic look at them that I could see that they were actually consistent with much more dubious government policies. Uh, And they actually had uh, imperialist ideas quite subtly baked into them. So take um, an example like Three Kings, this anti-war comedy set in Iraq. It starred Mark Wahlberg, George Clooney. Really good movie. But as good as it was, the underlying message of the film was that the United States had been morally inconsistent in the first Gulf War of 1991. And by implication, this left open the idea that a full-scale American invasion or Allied invasion that advanced all the way to Baghdad would have been better than what they actually did uh, in the real world. And so that meant that when the film's director met George W. Bush in 1999, way before 9-11, and he said to Bush, look, my film is going to challenge your father's legacy uh, on Iraq, a young George W. Bush was able to shoot back well, I'm gonna to have to finish the job then, aren't I?
6: Lenny Riemenstahl's 1935 documentary, The Triumph of the Will, is often cited as fetishizing Nazism. Is Hollywood fetishizing US cultural imperialism?
7: In a hundred years' time, I doubt that cultural historians will be discussing triumph of the will in the same breath as Transformers 12. I mean, the Nazis were systematically Uh, And deliberately glorifying a particular man, a totalitarian system. So, I do think there is a bit of a difference there. To be fair, though, Top Gun 2 really does have stronger echoes of genuine fascism, I'd say. In my country, the two most well known film journalists are Mark Commode and Simon Mayo. Now, they talked about Top Gun 2 and they loved it. And in fact, they scornfully dismissed any political concerns about it and they said, It's a fictional country in a fictional story, and it doesn't matter. It's a cartoon. It exists in a cartoony world. Uh, And then they put on these sort of silly voices to mock people like me who read the film politically. I think it's legitimate to enjoy a film on its own merits, but I don't think it's good to ignore constantly the systematic application of uh, military PR across thousands of film and TV products. And also, I think, particularly in the case of Top Gun 2, I mean, state involvement in that film it was so in your face. I think that it's kind of weird to ignore or dismiss it. Surely, if the military are at it, then so
6: also are, for example, the police. I mean, people love their crime dramas.
7: Absolutely, Brett. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, and I think it's reasonable to include the FBI, and major police forces like the LAPD and the NYPD in our definition of a securitized state. If we include the police, the numbers of productions supported by the security state does zip up a little bit and it uh, takes us well past 10,000.
6: Is it just movies and TV shows? What about video games which are played for hours on end by teenagers in the supposed safety and security of their bedrooms?
7: Yeah, there are other entertainment products targeted uh, and integrated uh, into the national security state. There is reliable evidence to indicate that the U.S. and U.K. militaries have supported. um, So Doom, for example, America's Army uh, was the most downloaded game for a long time in the early 2000s. Rainbow Six, Homefront, Call of Duty, Medal of Honour. There was a game called Mercenaries 2, World in Flames, which requires the gamer to take part in an invasion of Venezuela because this like Hugo Chavez socialist type leader has used nuclear weapons on the Allies. Now, the company that made that had previously developed training aids for the U.S. Army, but claims it didn't cooperate with the government on that particular product. You know, that kind of idea, Venezuela nuking nuking someone, or even having nuclear weapons, it's just ridiculous. And it's actually a plot device that was used in the Amazon Prime show, Jack Ryan, the, that series, hugely popular series. Um, insane threat inflation. But
6: isn't it just entertainment? Aren't we all grown adults free to make up our own minds?
7: Or does history tell us different? Entertainment can really exert a pivotal impact on society. There's a historian called John Hope Franklin, uh, and he said that without Birth of a Nation from uh, 1915, the explicitly racist movie, he said that without that film, the Ku Klux Klan would not have been reborn. If we talk about the U.S. military uh, in particular, I'd say that if these systems weren't in place, I'd say that within a few years, um, I think the U.S. would probably lose all legitimacy and wouldn't be able to use its force overseas which is not far off, really, what happened for a few years in the immediate aftermath of the Vietnam War. Surely the US is
6: not the only guilty nation. Surely the UK, for instance, also has its fat fingers stuck in such political pies.
7: Well, I have looked at other national cinematic systems a little bit. And in the UK, um, the Ministry of Defence we now know has worked on hundreds of entertainment productions uh, including films like Kingsmen, Kick-Ass, various James Bond movies. Uh, and we are examining the British case now systematically, which is being led by a PhD researcher. What I'd say, though, is that while it is obviously a good idea to pick apart and generally oppose all propaganda, I mean, by any measure, uh, and that's military size, film industry size, foreign policy ambitions, global cultural influence. I mean, the United States is just just dwarfs everybody.
6: So how can concerned citizens and their families actually watch your documentary, Theaters of War?
7: Well, contact me on Facebook or on YouTube. Uh, I'm on Dr Matt Alford, War, Laughs and Lies. That's if you've got any problems trying to acquire the the film. Uh, And if you're a student, you should be able to find it for free through your library on the system called Canopy.
6: Great stuff, Matt. Powerful subject matter. Let's hope people will now think twice about what they pay to entertain themselves. Thanks very much, Brett. Great talking to you. This has been the UK Desk for Arts Express and I've been Brett Gregory. Cheers.
0: And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express. Expression in the arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next year, and joined by James Taylor, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.
8: Should a old acquaintance be forgot and old acquaintance we forgot and gave.